How's everybody doing? Oh, that, that's good. There's like three people really excited to be here. Okay, uh, good start. Okay, now seriously, uh, my name is Al, and um, just great, great, grateful to be here. I love this this faith community, and a lot of you probably know I love to read. I just like to learn. I love to know things, and not, despite the rumor, not just so I can be an obnoxious know-it-all. That isn't my whole motivation, maybe a part of my motivation, but not the whole thing. But as, as, I've, as I've thought so much about learning and knowing, things have changed since I have a three-year-old grandson. It's like, what do I think is really important? What do I want to pass on to him? You know, is it finances and investments. I mean, money becomes a very important part of navigating our way through this world. Is it uh, technology? That's going to become more and more important as the years progress and, and IT things. Is it relationships about marriage and raising kids? What do I want Joshua to know? And, and as I reflect on what is important to know, ultimately, I have to conclude the same thing that a guy named A.W. Tozer concluded. Tozer was a brilliant theologian, philosopher, author, and pastor. And he says this, he says, the most important thing you can know about a man or a woman is what comes into their mind when they think about God. And so what comes into your mind when you think about God will ultimately determine a lot of things, your priorities, your goals, uh, the very trajectory of your life, uh, the journey, the the path you're going to take on the journey, your moral compass. And I believe, and our faith teaches, it will ultimately determine your eternal destiny. That's how critical it is. And so today, as we're finishing up our series on a beautiful design, we're going to look at the character and the nature of God. Now, now please stay with me, folks. There's probably some of you thinking, that seems so impractical, so abstract. And I want to suggest to you, it is the most practical thing you can, you can know and, and, and learn about. And let me tell you why. The last couple of days have been very difficult. I've spent a lot of time down at Baptist Hospital. Many of you know Art and Angelica Lopez. She's our director of children's ministries. And Art's dad had a massive heart attack on Friday. He's in a coma even right now as we speak. I'm going back there after this service. And, and understandably, they are wrestling with the biggest issues of life right now. And I, I hate that this is the truth, but all of us in here are going to die one day. Each and every one of us are going to have loved ones die. This is a broken and fallen world. And the truth of the matter is that when that happens, you will respond in some way. You will get past it and go on with your life. But the two questions are, How are you going to respond, and what direction will your life take after that? And I want to suggest to you that those two questions will ultimately be answered by what you believe about God, whether he exists, and what you think his character is. And so I think it is the most practical and the most important thing we can know, and that's why we're doing it today. And so please join me with a word of prayer. Father, I'm grateful for your word that you reveal yourself in your word. And Father, I I long so much to know you more fully. I long so much for my friends here at Rock Hills to know you and your reality. But unless you reveal it, Father, that won't happen. And so, so please, Father, would you be here 
and manifest your personal presence today and demonstrate yourself as the God of the universe in ways we can understand and grasp. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we have been going through a series called The Beautiful Design. We began with, with the first message, which is called the Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. And the primary takeaway, I think, is that each and every one of us in this room, every human being is made in the image of God, and so we're infinitely valuable. The second message was the design of women. And I love that message because what it does is it puts to rest this bad rap that people have given Christianity, that somehow we put women in a lesser place, that they're, they're not as good as men. That's, that's the, the you know, rumor going around our culture, and that is a lie. And what we talked about is God makes it clear in his word that men and women are equally loved, equally valued, equally respected, equally honored. We talked about Ephesians 3.28, where Paul wrote one of the most radical sentences in the history of mankind 2,000 years ago when he said, because of Christianity, this is in, in Galatians 3.20, he says, there is no longer Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. That is the most radically inclusive sentence ever written in human history. And to this day, Christianity is the most radically inclusive faith in the world. And so this idea that we somehow see women as lesser is, is a total falsehood against Christianity. And then we got onto the design of a man. And what we did emphasize in that is that men and women have, by nature, complementary roles. Even though they're equally loved and valued and respected, there's different roles that God has assigned to them, and this is obvious to anyone who looks at it. Women bear children. Men do not. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there are other areas where our design differs. And so in the, in the, uh, the message we talked about, the design of a man, we said that one of the ways God designed a man was to lay down his life for his wife. And then we went on uh, a couple of weeks ago, Stephen taught a wonderful message about friendship and community. And what we learned from that is that all of us have been designed to only flourish, to only achieve our greatest potential in a faith community. And so it's an incumbent upon us. God commands us to be part of a faith community. And if you're not, you're never going to reach your full potential. Not only that, the scripture goes on to say, if you don't come here, you are depriving the faith community of the gifts that you have and, and the part that you will play in helping me and others achieve our potential. And so we are designed for community. And finally, last week, I taught about God's design for marriage. And I taught the hard truth that God says, you will not ever terminate a marriage. He gives one exception, and that's adultery. And even that isn't required all right, and, and so you have to wrestle with this idea that we are not allowed to divorce. And what we said was that if you look at God's other principles for marriage, you will see that this is not a cruel or an offensive rule. Because if you do those things, something beautiful will happen in this design. And so if you, instead of giving advice and criticism to your spouse, if you focus on becoming a better spouse, you will then have a better spouse. That's designed into the fabric of the universe. We found another principle about marriage, that your spouse and you were created with needs. We get that right from Genesis. And, and that's a beautiful design also because here's the truth. God is going to involve us in meeting the needs of our spouse. And he's also woven into the very fabric of this universe the truth that it's more blessed to give than receive. 
So by making your spouse a person with needs, you get involved with God in meeting those needs, and then you receive the blessing of giving. And then the final truth that we covered last week was that love can never sustain commitment. This feeling of love isn't going to last on its own. And so this idea that somehow love will last for 50 or 60 years, and as long as it does, you'll stay committed, that's a lie from our culture. But what God's truth teaches is that commitment will sustain love. And we got that from Corinthians 13, the beautiful love passage. And it finishes by saying, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It continues on. And then it says, love never fails. So if you continue to live out the instructions in Corinthians 13, to be patient and kind and loving to your spouse, the feeling of love will always return. And so commitment will always sustain and energize love. And so that, that's a summary uh, of our series. If you miss any of those messages, they, they basically build on each other. So I hope you go think, consider going back to our website and listening to those messages and getting filled in on any that you missed. And as I said, today, we are no longer in this series called The Beautiful Design going to look at something that is designed. We're going to look at the designer. And I I have two goals for this message today. The first goal is that in looking at God's nature and character, you will see that he is a good and loving father that you can trust. The second goal is that you would see that he is the most captivating, the most exhilarating and enthralling being that has ever lived or will ever live. And and being captivated and enthralled by him, you will set aside as your first priority the pursuit of career or material things or, or, or hobbies. Now, all those things are good. You need to have a career. You need to provide material things for your family. Leisure and and hobbies are part of God's design in the Sabbath. Those are all good things, but they're not primary. So I hope you will see that God is the only thing that will truly satisfy as a primary pursuit of your life. And so my goal for this message is that you would lay all those other things aside, and the number one pursuit of your life would be the pursuit of knowing God, as as Tim was talking about in the song. And, And I know... That is a very ambitious goal, isn't it? But here's the good thing. We are transitioning from a beautiful design, this message series, to prodigal God. And Dave is going to use the the parable of the prodigal son to let us and help us know more about the character of God. So this is sort of a transition week between two message series, and now we're transitioning to looking at the character and nature of God. So let's get started, and, and let's begin... At the beginning, that's a good place to start, right? And that would be Genesis 1-1. And it's a verse that many of you are familiar with. And I think we have it here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, folks, that verse is absolutely staggering in its implications. The the ramifications, the the outflow of that verse is literally, quite literally, unimaginable. Because we are time beings, we cannot even imagine a being that has always existed and that could call into existence the very universe that we live in. 
There have been entire books of theology written on that verse. There have been entire books of philosophy written on that verse. And so it's a little bit ambitious to try to, to unpack that verse today. But I want to at least give you a couple of things that I think we can glean from this verse. The first is, if God created the heavens and the earth, then atheism is excluded. It can't be right. You see, if there's a God, there can't not not be a God, right? I mean, we're going to get that kind of insight. I mean, only here can you get that kind of insight. If there's not a God, I mean, if there is a God, there can't not not be a God, okay? Seriously, it, it really is an important implication of this verse. God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, atheism has been on the rise throughout the 20th century. And, and as, as a Christian for the last 25 years, at first I was worried about science. Now all I ever see is science catching up to our faith and proving it over and over again. And that's exactly what's happening in the area of God and design. You see, back in the 60s and 70s, Carl Sagan and a few others started this thing called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI. And what they thought was, well, there's trillions and trillions of stars, and that each star has planets, so there's trillions and trillions of planets, and just by the sheer number, it must be a certainty that there are other planets with life. So we'll set up these listening stations because there's bound to be radio waves coming our way that tell us there's other life in the universe. And you know what they found? Zero, nothing. In 1993, NASA shut the program down. And as they began to research and study, it wasn't that simple. In fact, what they began to find out is that the odds of any planet sustaining life are so astronomically low as to be absurd. You see, if the, if the, if the Earth was just a couple of fractions of a degree closer to the sun, life couldn't be sustained. It'd be too hot. If it was a couple fractions of a degree away, it couldn't be sustained. It'd be too cold. If Jupiter wasn't as large as it was, pulling away numerous asteroids, thousands of asteroids would hit our planet and life could not be sustained. And so as the scientists began to realize that, their foundation began to become very shaky. And I pulled some uh, quotes, all from atheists. These guys are astronomers. Uh, brilliant guys, and here's what a couple of them had to say. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken at the developments. He later wrote that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as the chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put the conclusion beyond question that this universe is designed. Let me translate that for you. He says, this couldn't have happened by chance. It just couldn't. And, and, it, and it goes on to say, this Fred Hoyle says, that the odds of this universe happening by chance would be the same as flipping a coin and have it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. And so the theoretical physicist Paul Davies, another known atheist, has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. And Oxford professor, another atheist, Dr. John Lennox, has said that the more we get to know our universe, 
the more, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in, gains in credibility as the best explanation for why we are here. Folks, you know, most of us don't have, you know, degrees in astronomy and cosmology. Most of us don't have PhDs and other letters behind our name. But if we were flipping coins, you know, having a little wager, and you were flipping a coin and it came up heads 10 quintillion times in a row, I might be a little suspicious that something else was going on there, okay? Seriously, it, it doesn't, you can see these guys are backpedaling. They're straining to have another explanation. And so this verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is staggering in its implications. Number one, it excludes atheism. It also excludes another uh, view that is starting to gain ground in our, in our time. It's called pantheism. And, and that is that God and the universe are one, that really the universe really is God. And, and this is the, you know, Buddhism is basically a pantheistic uh, religion, that, that God and the universe are one, they both always existed. Uh, goddess Mother Earth is gaining ground, and I did a little reading about that. And when you read about Gaia and Goddess Mother Earth, it, it always sounds so wonderful so serene. It's like peace and love and sunshine and little Bambi and, and little rabbits hopping around. And it, it sounds like a Hallmark card. And, and I just have one question. Have these people never watched the National Geographic channel? I mean, I turn that on and I see the lion creeping through the tall weeds. And in the distance, there's an antelope. And folks, we all know it's not going to end well for that antelope, right? It, it just isn't. And when that lion takes down that antelope, it is bloody. It is violent. It is brutal. And so these Gaia people, these Mother Earth people are saying, oh, our religion is so crude and so barbaric, the, the gods that we invented. Hey, watch the National Geographic channel. The survival of the fittest is a bloody, brutal mess. And so fortunately, the first verse of the Bible excludes the idea of pantheism, that God and the universe are one. God is outside the universe. He is an entity outside of time and space, and he called our universe into existence. And so once we understand that there is a creator and that we are part of his creation, that other Questions start to arise, don't they? You know, questions like, well, who is he? What is, what is he like? What's his name? And folks, we're not the first person to have those questions. You see, God, after our rebellion in the garden, God waited a period of time, then he called out a people called the Israelites, through whom his plan was to bring a Messiah many years later someone to save the world. And he calls out the Israelites, and after a while, he calls out this guy, Moses. And Moses is out in the desert, and God appears to him and says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to go to the Israelites and tell them that I'm going to lead you out of, you're going to be the earthly leader, but I am going to free you from the, the slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And you need to go tell them and tell Pharaoh. And Moses is like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not the man for this. I'm not persuasive. And besides, you know, who do I tell them that you are? And I think we have the verse here. It's in Exodus 3.14. And God looks at Moses and says, you are to tell them, 
I am that I am. This is what you're to tell the Israelites. I am has sent you. Now, as I was journeying and, and trying, to, trying to decide if I was an atheist, try, trying to figure out this thing called spiritual life, you know, I spent a long time doing that. And there was a period of time when I read that as many as 95 to 97% of people on this planet believe in God. And, and if you're an atheist, you have to come to grips with that. Either you're the smartest guy around and those 97% are morons, or it's the opposite, okay? Well, of course, me, I figured the opposite. I figured they were all morons. And, and the way I justified this belief was that they were much weaker than I they weren't as smart as I was. And so what they did was they had this fantasy to help them, you know, be strong through this difficult life. And so they invented God. They, it was, all the gods, all the religions were just made up. But when I hit this verse, it was like a freight train. It was like something exploded in my consciousness. Because I'm a trial lawyer. I see a lot of people lie. I know what made up stories sound like. And just think about it. If somebody was trying to make up a religion to get people to follow, you know, I could see him doing the, what, what Moses wrote about, and then he gets to the point, okay, now I'm going to make up the part about I I'm, I'm encounter God, and God sends me, and, and I'm going to say, okay, what should I tell him your name is? If you're making it up, you'd say, I know, I'm going to tell him my name is the weather God, and, and I can control rain and sunshine so you have great cop, crops. Or I'm going to tell them... Uh, I'll make up that I'm the war god, and, I, and if you, they follow me, I'll give them victory in war. That would be something that people would want to get behind. But just visualize Moses going, okay, and going back down to his people and kind of, yeah, I've spent time with God, and he's going to lead us. And Oh, you know, who is he? What's his name? Um, <clears throat> well, um, I am. It's like, what? I am? What does that mean, Moses? I mean, you, you begin to realize that that just has a ring of truth to it. It does not have that sense of something made up. But the longer you ponder that, the more powerful it becomes. What would God say if he has always existed and will always exist? If everything comes from him, the only unity, the only thing that has ever existed and will always exist is God. It's a brilliant description. I am. And so if you're like me, and, and during this journey on earth, you've, you've become enthralled with, with a concept or, or something that you really love in this life, then the real thing you're falling in love with is reflection of God. Let me see if I can give you an example of that. I've always loved justice. As a lawyer, I love being able to go into a courtroom and set a wrong to right. I love when a criminal who has violated our laws gets prosecuted and has to pay for the violation of the law. He, he gets justice. And so I've always had this sense of justice. And my question to you is, if this is all survival of the fittest, where did I get that sense of justice? When that lion takes down that antelope, maybe that antelope has two little babies. There's no one out prosecuting that, that lion Survival of the fittest has no sense of justice at all. We have a sense of justice because we have the imago Dei. The image of God is imprinted on us. So this thing we call justice, it is just a sense of the character and nature of God. So if you were able to say to God, can you tell me, please, what is justice? You know what God would say? 
I am. Some of you are enthralled with beauty. I mean, I, a beautiful sunset or a beautiful song, a beautiful worship, beauty. And if you were able to say to God, what is beauty? He would say, I am. And all these things that we love and are captivated by are just tiny reflections of the infinite reality of the character and nature of God. And so I hope I'm, I'm making progress here in this goal I have that somehow you'd, you'd be enthralled by God and you'd want to spend time getting to know him. If you love beauty, don't you want to know ultimate beauty? If you love wisdom, don't you want to know ultimate wisdom? Well, you can do it by pursuing God and trying to get to know him more. But, you know, I think there's at least two questions. There's, there's many more, but there's at least two questions that I think gets in the way of trusting God enough to pursue him. These were questions that I wrestled deeply with. The first question is, why did God create us? You know, as I read the Bible, it says that God is in perfect community, perfect relationship, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in that perfect relationship, he is absolutely satisfied. He needs nothing. My question well, if he needs nothing, why did he create us? And, and as I began to read a, an article about why parents have children, I came upon a, an amazing truth. If you haven't figured it out, parents, I, I need to tell you, I hate to break the news to you, but kids aren't a great investment. <laughs> you know, the return on investment with a kid is zero, and that's zero followed by 27 zeros. It's zero, okay? And, and so why do people have kids? The answer is according to this article and this thorough study, is people continue to have kids because they have such joy and satisfaction in pouring out their love on children. It just gives us great joy and satisfaction to do that. Jane and I pour out our love on, on Joshua. We can give him stuff all day long, never hear a word of thanks. I mean, he's a great kid, don't get me wrong. But then we deprive him of one thing late in the day, and it's like a hissy fit, Right? So it isn't like we're getting any kind of great gratitude or anything else. Why do people have kids? Because it gives us tremendous joy and satisfaction to do that. And I begin to wonder, I wonder maybe if God's motive is somehow similar to that. And then one day I found it. It was one of the most beautiful and treasured verses in my journey. And I think we have it here. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And I'm gonna, I want to read those because they are truly astonishing verses. And this is what the Word of God says. And God raised us up with Christ. So we're finding out he takes, takes us to heaven, raises up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So that's what he's done. Now the question is, but why? Why, why did he do that? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He did that because all he longs to do forever is to pour out his love and riches upon us. Isn't that astonishing? So this idea that he's looking for anything from us is just a lie. And we take a collection, not because God needs anything. He's not worried about money. But he gives us that instruction to share what we have so we can get the joy of being part of what he's doing in the world. And the second question that I, that I just had to have an answer for, if he's so satisfied and he needs nothing, 
why does he command us so often in the scripture to worship him? And, and as I, I began to reflect on that, I, I was actually reading an article about pleasure. I, I'm a hedonist, I admit it. I love pleasure. And what it was saying in this article is that the ultimate experience of pleasure is when you've experienced it to then express it and share it with someone else. And, and so if I'm walking down a beach with Jan and I look over my shoulder and I see the spectacular sunset, I'm not going to cover her eyes and just keep it for myself, right? What I'm going to do is say, oh, Jan, look at this. And she's going to look at it and we're going to start exclaiming about what amazing, beautiful sunset, the, the colors and the, and the reflection on the water. There's a joy and ultimate satisfaction in expressing your pleasure in something. And then a light went off in my head. That is why God instructs us to worship him. He doesn't need it. And it all goes back to what Jesus said in John 15, 10, and 11. He says, I have given you my commands so that when you follow them, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So God has given us the instruction, the command to worship him so that we can have the complete joy of experiencing the pleasure of God. Folks, this, this person we call God is, truly is the most spectacular, the most amazing, the most exhilarating, the most enthralling being you can ever or will ever experience. And I just want so much to encourage you to make that the pursuit of your life. Come here and hear the, the word of God proclaimed. Get in Bible studies. Read your Bible. Do everything you can to experience him more fully. But, you know, there's, there's one other quality that I, that I have to mention today. And that's his infinite holiness. God is perfectly holy, perfectly just. And the reason that's important is because when we rebelled in the garden, we revolted against God, we rejected him. We violated his perfect holiness and justice. Some of us might say, well, you know, why, why can't he just forgive that, you know? As though he could just sort of brush it under the rug, right? Like some corrupt judge who's going to ignore the law. Folks, God could no more sweep it under the rug. He could no more just ignore a violation of his holiness than God could make a square circle or a black white it's, it's an internal contradiction. It's, it's nonsense. He can't just forgive. He's holy. Anything that doesn't comport with his holiness is inconsistent with his character. But what did God do? To satisfy his holiness, his justice, he came to earth. God, Emmanuel, God as Jesus, walked the earth. He died on the cross taking our punishment. He lived the perfect life which God assigns to us. And if we put our faith in Jesus, God will assign his perfect holiness and will accept the punishment that Jesus gave on the cross, took on the cross on your behalf. Why would you not put your faith in a God like that? That is the gospel. And I want to tell you, as we conclude this series on a beautiful design, 
that is the most beautiful design.